Deuteronomy chapter 8. <clears throat> the younger generation has <coughs> known the word. They have heard the law. They have lived with the worship and lived <coughs> with the law. But they, they haven't received it directly themselves. <coughs> the older generation received the word directly. So Moses is now taking the younger generation systematically through the word and giving explanation and insight uh, into the word, its application, and its use in the future for them. He's, he's laying this all out very carefully. They very directly say that it is the obligation of this generation to then teach the younger generation that's coming. There is a great loss of this emphasis in the church today to relay to the younger generation the accuracy and the importance of God's word. Um, I, but by the way, um, your prayers, I so much appreciate them. The Hancock County Jail Bible study has resumed. So we were very concerned about that. Uh, we had been put out because of COVID-19. They still haven't let us back in, but they made arrangements for us to do it via video, and no one was responding. So our prayers, I asked you to pray with me. I contacted the jail leadership, and they took the necessary steps to ensure that the inmates were informed, invited, and brought to the study and for three weeks now, we've been resumed on those studies and men have been in attendance. So continue to pray for them. I bring that up because, uh, once again, uh, talking to the inmates, uh, and they're able to communicate with me as I share with them, uh, the question comes up of, can I trust the Bible? You know, they, many of these men have, uh, you know, been raised in and around churches so, you know, Christianity is very prominent in our culture, regardless of what certain people want you to think. Uh, it is very dominant, but they rejected the word of God. And when I talk to them about why they rejected the word of God, they often share with me that people have told them and relayed to them, you know, well, the Bible was written by men and that it's been corrupted over time. And that it's been changed and, it, and you know, the, what it says now isn't what it originally said. And they have all kinds of opinions about the word of God without ever having studied the historicity of that. They've never looked into whether any of that is true. The word of God claims to have been written by God himself, right? Paul said that all scripture is God breathed. So, if all scripture is God breathed, if that is the case, I insist that it is, the scripture insists that it is, if that is the case, then it stands to reason that God would have protected it also. That, that he, if he's powerful enough to author it, then he's powerful enough to protect it. Okay? Um, I've, I've given this explanation to you before. Most of you have heard it. First five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, written by Moses. It is referred to as the Torah by the Jews. Uh, the word is spelled T-O-R-A-H. 
meaning the law or the Torah. In the original language, in Hebrew, if you begin at the first letter of Genesis and you go through to the first T, 50 letters later, O, 50 letters later, R, 50 letters later, A, 50 letters later, H, 50 letters later, T, 50 letters later, O, R, A, H, every 50th letter, Torah, 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 to the Torah, which is Leviticus, right? Go to the end, Numbers and Deuteronomy, start backwards, go to the first T, 50 letters later, O, 50 letters later, R, A, H, every 50th letter, Torah, 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 from Deuteronomy back through Numbers to the Torah. Genesis and Exodus point to the Torah, every 50th letter. Numbers and Deuteronomy backwards point to the Torah, every 50th letter. God's name in the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H. It's been improperly translated Jehovah. It's an acceptable translation. It's just inaccurate. Some just say Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. We don't know how it was pronounced. The Jews were kind enough to lose that for us. They did it through their veneration of God's name and not wanting to pronounce it. But if you begin in Leviticus and go to the first occasion of Y, 50 letters later, W-H-Y-H-W-H-Y-H-W-H, his name, every 50th letter. 50 in the scripture signifies the law or judgment or the perfection of law and judgment. God signed the first first five books of the Bible, verifying that. When the Jews translated the scripture, or I should say copied the scripture, they considered it to be God's breathed word and did not want to alter it at all because God had said, if you take away from this book, your name will be taken away from the book of life. If you add to this book, the curse contained in this book will be added to you. They took it very seriously. So they went through a great process of praying and fasting and copying letter for letter, not verse for verse or passage for passage, letter for letter, the original manuscripts. If they messed up the manuscript and they had a numeric process of verification, where they assigned a number to each one of the letters, and when they were done, they would add up the letters, and if they didn't have the correct number, and if the sum did not reach the correct sum, they would burn the scroll and begin again. That led to a, a hyper-accuracy copy. We have thousands of copies of the Word of God, and they all verify one another. If, if you have copies that have changes or uh, portions missing. You compare them to other copies. And when the summary of the other copies verifies they are accurate and this one is altered or missing, then you do away with the one that is inaccurate or missing. Thousands and thousands of copies. There are only 32 original manuscripts of William Shakespeare's play, um, Romeo and Juliet. And, and they are all wildly different from one another because they were all adapted for the stages and the areas where they were being performed. You've got to alter the set. You've got to alter the way the script is done. If you only have male actors, then you've got to change certain aspects of the production. Now, this is literally what's going on. So, so there are big differences in that we trust those manuscripts 
and we only have 32 copies. There are thousands of copies of the scripture that verify one another. The, the, the church today teaches the younger generation that the Bible's not trustworthy. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The reason our culture is in the mess that it is in because it doesn't trust the word of God. We need to get the hearts and minds of our young people back to the accuracy of God's word. Here, Moses is recounting the word to them and commanding them that they have to teach the younger generation. Verse 1, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply. It's going to be life to them. Death will be the result if they neglect the word of God. And go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. We pointed out as we worked our way through these chapters that God is talking to them about how they're going to behave and how they're going to sacrifice and how they're going to worship and how they're going to live and how they're going to divide the land and how they're going to build their homes and how they're going to treat their neighbors. They haven't even entered into the land yet. The, the point is God understands fully these promises will be fulfilled. He, he has no speculation in his mind. He has no doubt in his conduct. He presents it with an absolute truth in the present. We can't do that, can we? And Jesus Christ tells us to be careful not to do that. You know, James, in the book of James, goes as far as to say, <clears throat> don't say that you're going to move to such and such a town, live there for a year, buy, sell, trade, and do whatever. Rather, James says, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Because we make our plans and they change and they fall apart. We are an unpredictable people. God is not. When he declares a thing, it is so. <clears throat> so here, you're going to go in and possess the land which I swore to your fathers. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, the way that's written in English leads us to believe that God was testing them in order to find these things out himself. The way it's written in the Hebrew language is that he was testing them so that, you know, it might be phrased more like this, so that we could know. Meaning, you know, that we would come to the realization, you know, if we were the nation of Israel, that they would come to the realization as much as God already knew. So they would have a mutual understanding of their frailty. Right? Uh, a, an example in our own lives, maybe when you started walking with the Lord, uh, you thought you were pretty squared away. And over time... You came to discover that in certain situations, in certain settings, you weren't as strong as you thought you were. You weren't as predictable as you thought you were. You weren't as trustworthy as you thought you were. Compromise and weakness, temptations and failures 
And, and we get so disappointed with ourselves, do we not? Can't believe I acted that way. Can't believe I lost my temper right there. Can't believe myself. And if you listen spiritually, you'll hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying to you, well, I knew that all along. And I just needed you to get to the point where you would recognize these things about yourself, right? Because if we don't recognize them, then we won't affect any change in ourselves, will we? If, if we were blind, and there was a time where we were blind to ourselves. You know, I went to the pastor's conference uh, in Maryland this year, a few of the guys, and uh, came to the realization that I've been going to uh, the pastor's conference in Maryland for half of my life now. That's pretty weird for me to think about. And I remember the first year that I went there, and I was reflecting on my behavior as a young 25-year-old youth pastor. And I was thinking, good Lord, what was my pastor thinking? You know, th this year, I'm looking back 25, 27 years going, that, my pastor was out of his mind to have brought me down here, to, to have incorporated me in this. You know, there's been some growth and some maturity over the years, but, but where we began in the process, the things I can remember what I was thinking about myself when I went there that first year. Wow, was I arrogant. You know, I'm ashamed to admit how awesome I thought I was at that time. And I was blind to it. Did, did not think for one second that that was arrogance. Didn't look at that for one second as though there was anything inappropriate about that. Today, very different perspective. God allows us to go through these things. It's always interesting to me to read about the 40 days of temptation for Jesus and see that little phrase that says, and the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. The Holy Spirit led him into a place to be tested by the devil. Consider that sometimes the Lord walks you straight into something to show you something about yourself, to expose things you're unaware of. You shall remember that the Lord led you all in the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to be hungry, fed you with manna, allowed you to be hungry, right? I don't know about you, but I'm a lot like the nation of Israel, when the trial and the testing comes, I begin to whine about how could God allow me to come into these circumstances? Why would God? You know, I know you're not like that, but you know you can pray for me. It's, it's strange the way the nation of Israel behaves. It's strange we as professing believers behave. God allowed them to hunger so that they would learn to rely upon him. Now, now, I want to point the contrast here, and I'll try to remember to do it on the other end, right? Because he allows the hunger to come to them so that he can provide them with manna. Now, God does a thing right here where you have to get the, the, the Hebrew language sort of in context, right? Because manna literally means what is it? 
So if you read that this way, right, that God allowed you to hunger so that he could feed you with what is it? Right? And, and then as they go through, and he talks about how, uh, you know, you didn't know uh, what it was that, that it was you were eating. You know, I fed you with what is it which you did not know. <laughs> you did not know what is it. Right? Have you had this experience where God took care of you and you were just left baffled with how he took care of you? In the process, you learn that God is reliable. Right? That, that in the circumstances, you have no explanation for how God took care of you. He just took care of you. When you can get the full explanation, then you kind of lose your you know, awe and wonder because, oh, well, you know, it's, it's an explainable thing. I know all the steps that took place in order for me to get this. Uh, I've described you before. Forgive me for being very repetitious. I was a newlywed and I was a, uh, you know, about to be a young father. And my um, previous method of providing for myself was criminal activity and I had surrendered my life to Christ and you know made a vow that I was following the Lord and no longer going to live that way and now right for some of you that have heard this story before I got very sick as a young man we we're living in our first little apartment and now I can tell you that it was Henoch Shunlein Purpura that I suffered from. Didn't know that at the time, right? Leukocytoclastic vasculitis breaks out all over my legs. I was in terrible health, couldn't go to work. Missed two weeks of work. You know, they hold your paycheck back one cycle a month before I get my paycheck. I've got no food, me and my young wife. And we ate our last package of hot dogs and our last box of macaroni and cheese. And went to bed with nothing but ketchup in the refrigerator. And I got to tell you, in my heart and mind, I was thinking I could call a few people and make quick money the way that I used to. But there's a thing in my heart that's saying, no, you're a child of God now, and that's not how things are done. So I went to bed praying with my wife that the Lord would make provision. Because I've got to go through Thursday with no provision because Friday I'm going to finally get paid. <clears throat> so we go to bed Wednesday night praying, get up Thursday morning. We go check on a couple of resources. Lori goes one direction. I go to the Salvation Army. We both come back empty-handed. She arrives at the house before I do. I come in. She's sitting at the kitchen table with our friend Laurel. And she says to me, did you come back to this house when we left together? And I said, no. She said, you didn't come in this house and dump a whole coffee can full of sand on the couch? And I'm like, are you? No. No, I did not do that. You, are you nuts? No. And she brings me over to the trash can. And there's a mound of dirt. 
sand in the bottom of the trash can. You didn't come in this house and dump that sand on the, on the couch. And I say, no, I absolutely did not. So she pulls $35 out of her pocket and says, so you didn't put this money underneath the couch cushion and pour that sand on the couch cushion so that I would pick up the couch cushion and sweep it in the trash. And when I went to put it back, find the $35. And I say, absolutely not. And she says, well, maybe this is Joe's money, a friend of ours that had slept on our couch like two nights before. We call Joe, not his money. Call a couple other people and then just, hallelujah, let's go get some food. And we go to the grocery store and we buy simple items that are going to last us for a day till we get my paycheck, right? Now, here's the deal. I discover six months later where the $35 come from. And it's worth your time to hear about the manna in my life, right? <clears throat> my friend Dallas Sutherland had worked for D'Angelo's Sandwich Shop in Keene, New Hampshire. And he had been given a manager's position in Rhode Island. And so he had moved to Rhode Island to be the manager down at that sandwich shop. He heard Lori and I got married. And this, this is a guy who's an acquaintance, right? He's not like a deep-seated friend. He's just a guy we hung out with. He hears Lori and I got married. So he comes back to Keene, New Hampshire, visits his parents, then comes straight over to our house on a Friday night, knocks on the door. What are you doing? Nothing. Want to get some pizza and watch movies? Sure. Right? Pizza and movies. He hangs out. We're literally like, why are you doing this? And he's like, I just heard you guys got married. I wasn't here. Thought I'd, you know, bless you guys. Stays for the evening, eats pizza, watches movies, leaves. Loses $35 in my couch. We don't know that. Okay? We don't know that. <clears throat> the day I need the 35 bucks, there's a pile of sand on my couch. Dallas calls me six months later and says, hey, weird question. I was at your house six months ago, and I think I lost $35 in your house. I say, I think you did too. He says, oh, no, I literally stopped at the bank and took money out. And I went over to my mom's and I bought this and then I got that pizza and I got this. And so when I sat down and I bounced my checkbook, I had everything except for 35 bucks, which must have been the change when I got the pizza. So I think I lost that at your couch in your house. I say, I really think you did. Right? He's, he's a manager of a restaurant. Money and books are his thing. Right. So he calls me. He says, oh, no, no, don't, I don't want the 35 bucks. Just. Glad it blessed you. Glad you're able to keep it. Okay, so I got like a whole bunch of explanation around it. What I do not know to this day is how the sand got on my couch. House was locked, right? Do angels break into homes? I don't know. You know, is there an angel just standing there pouring sand on my couch? Saying to his buddy, I've got no idea why I'm doing this. I just. Lori says, pile of sand. I mean, there's a pile of sand in the trash can. I know where the money came from. I don't know where the sand came from. The sand was the sign that said, look under here. What is it? Don't know. 
D don't know. I do not know. That's all I can say to you. Now, at the same time, we got to go forward. This is why I wanted to make this explanation. Because the nation of Israel is going to have great prosperity where their provision comes from their paycheck. It comes from their work. It comes from their labor. It comes from their abundance. And God, in the next chapter, is going to say, you're going to forget the manna. You're going to forget the fact that the paycheck in your hand is actually manna. You're going to think it's your strength. You're going to think it's your capabilities. You're going to think it's your own resources. And it's not. It's me. I'm going to move you into the land. I'm going to fulfill my promises. And when it becomes your wealth and your prosperity, you're going to be tempted to forget that it's all manna. Remember that, saints. Remember that, Calvary Chapel down east, that your provision is from the Lord. It always has been. It's never been anything else. If you're not a believer, and God has taken good care of you, it was manna then too. God is taking care of us. Here, I fed you with what you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell in those 40 years. I take uh, a slightly different approach than like Joe Fos. Joe Fos. Uh, says that, and, and this is possible, totally possible, he, the way it's described, uh, Joe teaches that perhaps, you know, like one shirt did you your whole lifetime. You know, say, you know those cute little bib overalls you give a kid? You know, he's got his bib overalls and, you know, Abby's son Benjamin has cute little blue like Converse sneakers and just, I mean, that's cool when you're a little kid. But when you're 40 and you're still wearing those Bib overalls and those blue Converse. It'll feel kind of weird, but at the same time, you know, it's a testimony that, like, your shoes grew with you. That would be weird. There's another thought, which I think is how it went, but I don't know that either, which is <clears throat> there was a constant thrift shop where... You know, your Uncle Joe who passed away, now his shoes fit you. You know, their clothes were enough for but still it's not wearing out, right? God's preserving them. Either way it goes. It's going to be a testimony to you. Even if you're going into, you know, the Jewish wandering thrift shop and you're, you're getting your new sandals because you've outgrown your old ones and you're leaving your smaller sandals for the next person, you know, that, what do we say? You, you know, never mock a man until you walk a mile in his shoes. If you're putting on a dead man's shoes, right? And the reason that he is dead is because he did not believe God and he rebelled against God. That's why those shoes are now available to you. Because they came to the border and God sent them in. And they were supposed to go in and possess the land. And they came back and said, we can't do it. Giants in the land, they're going to kill us all. And fear spreads through the whole nation, and they rebel against God, and they depart from Kadesh Barnea, 
and wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And so if it is that sandals and shoes and clothing are available to you from the people who have passed away, the only reason that those clothes have been vacated is because of the death that resulted from rebellion. It's going to be a powerful lesson either way for these people. Your garments did not wear out. Your feet did not swell. There's two portions to the feet did not swell. If you have to walk in the desert, your feet are going to swell. The heat of the sand is going to make your feet swell. There's nothing you can do about that. But here's the thing. God sent a pillar of cloud ahead of them in the day and a pillar of fire at night. That cloud cooled the desert for them. The scripture tells us that they were cooled by the cloud. They were under the protective shade of that cloud constantly. You've done that, right? You go to the beach, you hang out, you're on the towel, you're on the picnic blanket, whatever. You step off on that hot sand and it, it burns your feet. If you've got to do that for 40 years, it's going to cook right through your sandals. It's going to make your feet swell. God protected them from this. God will protect and preserve you through your travels. It's an amazing thing that God does. You should know in your heart that a man chastens his son. So the Lord your God chastens you, disciplines you, corrects you. The, the sociologists are finally admitting that the reason the younger generation is in the condition it is in currently that we are all presently dealing with is because they were not disciplined and corrected in their homes. Sociologists, psychologists are finally admitting, okay, that was not a great idea. You know, turns out you are not okay and I am not okay. We need discipline. We need correction. It's, it's interesting, you guys. It was uh, 2021, five years, six years ago now, one of the largest uh, psychological studies in child development and discipline was completed. And you know what they discovered about time, time out? It's incredibly damaging to children. Putting a child in timeout is incredibly damaging. What it creates in a child's heart is anger, frustration, and rebellion. That's what it produces. Anger, frustration, and rebellion. And, and they were startled to discover that physical discipline accomplishes what they had intended to accomplish through timeout. Our grandparents were right. Spank their butt. Who would have known, right? Don't abuse them. That would be wrong. Discipline them, and you'll have a well-shaped child. Chastening, right? Discipline of God, right? I think I know all of us in this room pretty well, most of us, enough to say we've all been spanked by the Lord. We've all been corrected. He has sent circumstances to us that we learned through. They weren't easy, were they? Here's another thought, brothers and sisters, right? All this trouble we're having with law enforcement and jails, the, the corrections system, right? What, what is the corrections system? Time out. 
The psychologists have discovered it, it timeout creates, right? Anger, frustration, and rebellion. And so we've built a massive system where we house thousands of people in what? Timeout. You've been bad. So 10 years for you. Ten, let, let's have you hang out with the worst, most hardened criminals we can find who themselves have been doing this for decades and they are frustrated and angry and rebellious and guess what you're going to learn? Frustration and anger and rebellion. It's interesting how you rebel against God's word. You, you forget God's word as the prophet said. You throw it over your shoulder as though it were useless and look where we are today. God chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastened you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Fear him. Just had a conversation with a few guys this morning. You say, as a believer, need to learn to fear God. And automatically people go, well, I mean, it doesn't really mean like fear. You know, it's more like reverence. You know, respect. You want to you wanna learn to have a certain reverence for God. The God who can cast you out of his presence for all of eternity. Into a lake that burns with fire. For all of eternity. Where you will exist in pain and torment for all of eternity. There's good cause for fear. In that. Good cause for fear. Listen. My father passed away when I was very young, but my mother's father, Ralph Bolster, was still alive. And Ralph didn't put up with any guff at all. I think I've shared with you before, I was in his house, I had almost a teenager, and uh, I arrived at Ralph's house in a bad mood. My mom and I had been having it out, and I came into Ralph's house, mouthing off to my mother, and that went on for quite a while. And I escalated the situation pretty good, I'll tell you. And at one point, I was in full pitch, telling her off. And suddenly, it was as though I had been struck by lightning on my rear end. And I came about three feet off the floor. And a rage filled my heart as I spun around. And when I landed on the floor, there was Ralph Bolster with a giant hardwood yardstick in his hand. And he's just putting it away. <laughs> he's just reach over and smack me right on the rear end with that thing. And he's putting it back. And I must have had a look on my face that said something of the nature of, I'm going to attack you. You're next. Because he did this number where he had it almost put away and he's looking over at me and he went and took it back out. <laughs> and just stood there with it in his hand like, if we're going to go, then, you know. And I must have mellowed because he gave me a little nod and put it away. I never mouthed off to my mother in his presence ever again. Ever. Right? I had a fear some years later, it became an absolute reverence for that man. But I had a fear in my heart 
for what that man was capable of delivering. That old man, what he was capable, 1917, right? He was born. In 1980, he wasn't messing around with me. He, he was raised. I had a fear in my heart. Reverence. Reverence is part of it, right? What does the scripture tell us? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Listen, it's not one of the beginnings of wisdom. It is the beginning, or right? It's not as though there are different forms of wisdom, different kinds of worldly wisdom, godly wisdom. No, no. You want wisdom, right? You can have plenty of knowledge, right? Spend a couple hundred thousand dollars, go to college, fill your head full of knowledge. You'll have all kinds of knowledge. Your knowledge may eclipse my knowledge many times over. I'm not talking about knowledge, right? Wisdom. Tell me you do not recognize a profound lack of wisdom in Washington, D.C. Tell me you do not recognize a profound lack of wisdom in the culture all around us. Lots of knowledge, lots of education. I appreciate that. You know, I need educated people around me. Teach me, show me stuff. Right, I get that. I have a respect for knowledge. Wisdom, profoundly lacking. Fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom. We need to start over, amen? He need to get back a fear. It's a real thing. To walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs. you got to do the contrast. They're in the desert. There are no brooks. There are no springs. There are no rivers. For people that have been living this way for 40 years, this is like, oh, wow, that sounds like paradise. My goodness, brooks and springs and water and lakes and seas. This would be amazing. Lands of brooks of water, fountains of springs that flow out of the valleys and the hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey, right? Pollination. You get all kinds of fertilization that is taking place in this land. They, they don't have any of that. Now, they have God's provision. They have God's food, but they don't have these things occurring you know in nature as it was a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity you'll have an abundance in which you will lack nothing a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper when you have eaten and are full and you shall bless the lord your god for the good land which he has given you Great abundance. Here comes the warning, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today. The thing that kills faith is comfort and ease. Every time. Every time. We're looking at Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit descends, church explodes, massive church growth all over the Middle Eastern region, all across the north and the south of the Mediterranean, Africa, all the way back as far as the Atlantic. The church is just 
overwhelming all of its populace. And it doesn't stop until 350 A.D. In 350 A.D., Constantine announces that he's had a vision of the cross where he heard a voice that told him to go and conquer in this sign. And he goes from killing and persecuting the church, which had tempered down a little bit by then, but it was still being attacked. He goes from persecuting the church to making Christianity the state religion. Suddenly, no persecution of Christianity per se. It's, it's accepted completely. It's endorsed entirely. And the church dies right there in the moment. Church growth stops because the church no longer has to live by faith. They now completely encode everything about the church, their doctrine, their forms, their offices, their buildings, their construct, their methods. Everything becomes methodized. And as a result, the church just withers and dies. There's, there's no resistance. Maybe this illustration will help you. We started launching astronauts, right, 1969, putting them into outer space and into orbit. And we bring them back to Earth. The longer that we keep them out there, they arrive back to Earth. We, we were startled when we take them out of capsules and they can't walk. So much so that we actually initially begin a process of don't roll the cameras when we first get them back to Earth. Because they're going to look like, you know, drunken jellyfish. It's not good. It's embarrassing. Right? So much so that now, when we put them on the International Space Station, when we've flown them on the shuttle, when we keep them in orbit for lengthy periods of time, we, ha we have developed a method of strapping them to the floor with rubber bands, bungee cords, and they have to work out and exercise every day. Because no gravity instantly starts to kill them. Their lungs, their heart, their muscle structure, their circulatory system, everything starts to fail. They live in an environment of zero resistance, and it wipes them out in a very short period of time. Put them into orbit for less than a month. They come back, and they've atrophied in every way. They were astonished. Okay, your legs are going to, you're not walking. There's no gravity, your arms, right? We get that. They're, they were amazed to see <coughs> the dramatic effects on their hearts and the ill health they were returning to the planet with. Resistance is good. Strain is good. If you're living in a comfortable environment, then you, you, you need to create for yourself a strain, There was a time where the church here was the largest producer of ministers and the largest producer of Bibles and the largest producer of missionaries in the world, right? We, we were going everywhere we could in order to spread the gospel. Why? Because here it was easy. So we were going places in order to continue to be strong and continue to grow. The church has just completely atrophied. You walk into churches and you don't know if you're in a nightclub or a church. It's just entertainment. Nothing more. Really, really dangerous state to be in. 
just oh, I could go off on the things I've seen. You know, pastors driving seventy thousand dollar four wheel drive pickup trucks. You know, all jacked up, and you know they literally have ten thousand dollars in the wheels on their trucks. You know, and when asked, like, what is this about? They justify it with, well, man, I'm just trying to reach the younger crowd. Or you could sell your truck and build churches all over the world. Just a thought, you know, I'm just a suggestion. that You can still build a church building for a hundred believers in India for $1,000. So if you need help, you know, doing that, let me know. I'll put you in the right direction. And those believers there, they just want cinder blocks, right? Wooden uh, truss roof and metal roofing so that when they gather to worship, uh, they can do it even when it rains, right? That allows them to, to meet even when it rains. And it also keeps them from being pelted with rocks by the Hindus. Right? That's always nice <laughs> when you can sit in church and not get pelted by rocks. Strange. What comfort and ease. Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God, not keep his commandments, his judgments, his statutes that I command you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, not added, multiplied, right? Great abundance. And all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, right? And the New Testament tells us that that rock was Jesus. It's interesting. It doesn't say it symbolized him. It says it was Jesus. So you can go home and debate that. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna? Who fed you in the wilderness with what is it? Which your fathers did not know. That he might humble you and that he might test you to do good in the end. Then you say in your hearts, my power and my might and my hand have gained me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. God doesn't mind if you get wealthy, but he's the one who gives you the power to do that, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so shall you perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Listen, Father's Day. Leadership, right? Men called to be leaders of their homes, of their churches. That's not going to happen if men don't fear the Lord. It will not happen. We need to be examples. We need to lead in our homes. We need to lead in our churches. And we need to lead in our communities. We need to help other people 
recognize the wisdom of fearing God and following him. I say again, as I did last week and the week before, we need to be involved in our communities. You know, it's very easy to just continue to withdraw and isolate ourselves and say they are crazy out there. They are crazy out there. And we need to go out there and we need to help. And we need to be involved. I got to tell you as a pastor, I was really proud of you guys going down to Knowlton Park and be involved in the Pride Day, which, you know, celebrating homosexuality, you were there opposing and preaching and sharing and leading people to Christ. That's, that's the best place to be. You know, if, if they're going to tell us where they're all going to gather <laughs> as heathens and perverts and unbelievers, then that makes it easy for us to go and find them and share Christ, to, to lovingly go and share Christ with them. It is going to be confrontational. And you are going to have to say things that people get upset with, but you can say it lovingly with a smile on your face because you're inviting them out of their Egypt. You're inviting them out of their bondage. You can talk to them about, I was a slave to sin, and Christ has delivered me, and look where we can all go together. Let Christ use you as his minister. Do not, right? There's a culture around us that has forgotten. We are the remnant. Be the people who remember and remind. Make sense? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. They're not going to be happy to hear it. Share it with them lovingly. Father, we lift Sheila up to you again. We pray that you would have had your will. Lord, bless us and the message we have read from your word. Help us to be men and women who live by it. That we would share with the world the hope of your word. The hope of you and your salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.